trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In this week's episode, I'm checking in with a YouTuber, interviewer, and trans man called Mars. Mars's YouTube channel is called Upper Hand Mars, and he has interviewed a range of people, including trans people and detransition people, on his channel and his podcast, The Mars Show Podcast. I came across Mars through his interview on previous guest Aaron Kimberley's Transparency Podcast, and he recently made a video called Dave Chappelle is Not Transphobic. So I was very keen to get him on to discuss his journey and his perspectives on the trans conversation right now. In this episode, we discuss how his gender dysphoria began and his journey to transition from female to male, how going on testosterone affected his physical health and why he's recently decided to come off it, the conversation about gender dysphoric children right now, the conversation about trans within the butch lesbian community and how he found himself excluded from some parts of the trans community because he disagreed with some of their louder views. Mars has stated that he wants to be called Mars throughout this podcast, so that is how I refer to him in all the questions throughout his journey. So this is how my conversation with Mars went. Mars, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you and stepping in at short notice on this Sunday evening, which we are recording in. After I heard your interview on the Transparency podcast with Aaron, I was just so keen to get you on. So how are you? How was your Christmas? How was your New Year's? Thanks for having me on. I know it was short notice, but I actually didn't mind. I have a lot coming in uh, February, so this actually works for me. My Christmas and holidays have been pretty good. Nothing really too crazy to report. That's good. How about about yourself? (laughs) Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. It was the first Christmas I've had since COVID where I've been able to spend time with my family. So I basically like self-isolated out of fear because I'm not Mm. sure if you're aware of the situation in London, but basically like everyone was getting COVID at some point in in, in London. So I self-isolated then. And then, yeah, just had a really nice time with my family. I've got two baby nephews now. It was their first Christmas with all of us. So that was really nice. So yeah, definitely enjoyable one, nice and chilled. So yeah, all good, all good. My right end. When I saw your Dave Chappelle video, Mars, I just knew you were someone I had to kind of get on the podcast to talk to and, and talk <laughs> yeah. about loads of other things as well. But we'll get to that video as well. So without further ado, shall we start the show? I want to kick off the pod by talking about your own mental health journey, Mars, as without this, you probably wouldn't be talking about the topics you discuss on your YouTube channel. So I ask all my special guests this question first, take me back to early life, teenagers, upbringing, family, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Mars we meet here? Who's the Mars we meet here? That's deep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if I roll back the tape and I start from the very beginning, I mean, my childhood was pretty normal considering everything, you know, like I grew up in a Cuban household, parents immigrated from Cuba to this country. And there's nothing really that stands out in my childhood as far as anything that most people kind of connect to, like whether someone is trans, right? Like there's no trauma, abuse, none of that. There are obviously certain things in my childhood where 
I, I could say, yeah, that stands out just because it made me dysphoric, maybe being lumped in with girls and things like that, but nothing really major. I would say a lot of the red flags probably started coming after puberty when things get weird and you can't really escape who you are. And there were definitely periods in my life where my mental health was becoming an issue. And again, this all began after puberty and it got worse during my probably late teens. It got worse. And then it was pretty messy in my twenties as well. So there's always been stuff going on basically. Mm. So yes. And not all of it is my gender dysphoria. A lot of it was just, there was a periods where I was just really anxious, some ADHD perhaps, and depression, but a lot of it also could just be like growing up, right? Like we all go through a lot of rocky periods, but there was definitely towards the end of late teens and early twenties ish, there was definitely like self-harm or intentions to just, I don't know, wake up blacked out from God knows what. So again, like my childhood, awesome, but as life went on, mental health, not so Mm. awesome. Set the scene for the listeners when it comes to that period after puberty, Mars. So how did you experience gender dysphoria? How did it affect your mental health? And could you just give a brief definition of what it is as well for the listeners who might not know? Yeah, so gender dysphoria, sometimes defined as like gender incongruence now, I think, is basically feeling a disconnect or a mismatch is what they say between your body and mind is probably the best way to put it. In other words while I recognize and have always recognized the fact that I'm a female, right? My biological sex, female. So I'm a female and I will never neglect that. That is a fact. But there was always just a sense of certain things about my body really didn't really connect to who I thought I was or who my brain connects to, if that makes sense. I mean, I understand how some of this, when even I describe it, it it gives me very delusional vibes so so i, I get call it you delusional, Trust mate, me. Don't worry. <laughs> it's fine you won't be the first <laughs> so yeah so there's that you know but when we're talking about gender dysphoria to listeners that don't know i could describe it in one way but then you might meet a different trans person and they'll describe it in another way and that's because to me dysphoria has become almost like an umbrella mm. term where you say dysphoria, and then under that, there's gender dysphoria. Social dysphoria. Social dysphoria. <laughs> right, exactly. I thought that was just anxiety. Uh, oh, I'm... oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And you know what? Some of it could be anxiety, but we lump everything under this dysphoria umbrella. So now it's like, and I completely trailed off, and I don't remember the next part. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. Sorry. <laughs> happens a lot on my show as well. It happens yeah. a lot on my show. You said off air to me that there were some expectations of women or females that you were aware of growing up when you were experiencing gender dysphoria, Mars, that could be seen as quite Mm -hmm. traumatic or you felt were quite traumatic. Could you expand on that? What Mm -hmm. were those expectations? Yeah, you know, because I think anyways, I'm Latino. So growing up in that kind of household, they are way more all about these gender roles, right? Traditional. Yeah, traditional, sorry. So men are expected to be like super macho and women are supposed to be like, I don't know, submissive or something like that, (laughs) subservient. Well, something like that. So that idea was there, but it was really kind of interesting because my parents, my dad was more of a relaxed, you know, type in the house. And then my mother was very much the voice of the family. You know, that's a lot she, of Latina women as well, was, by the way. There's a lot of strong Latina <laughs> women like that. So I'm, not, I'm sure that's not right? a, I'm sure that's not a, 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 um, Yeah, you don't, you don't want to mess with them. <laughs> yeah, there's none. <laughs> so anyways, I didn't grow up with the idea that, oh, well, because I'm a woman, I have to be like in a dress and be this. 
but I understood that because I'm a woman, it is preferred that I was that. Even though like my mom, you know, she basically seemed like a tomboy at home. And then like when she goes out, she was more like, I guess, a classy lady. She was pretty rough around the edges. So like I knew these things were okay, but not okay at the same time. It depends where you do it. <laughs> so when puberty struck, it was no longer okay, right? Before that, it was fine. I could be a tomboy. I could run around in my underwear. I could play with the boys. And then puberty came and it was like, well, you know, you should probably try to socialize a little bit more. And these weren't things that were directly said to me, right? I was never told, Mars, because you're a woman, you must behave like this, right? But there were hints about the way I was could be wrong. For example, being thrown into modeling classes, right? Like this is like not a good idea. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was a good idea because I like women. So it put me all around women, <laughs> hot ones too. So I was fine with that. <laughs> but but it's not a good idea because now you've completely confirmed it all, right? Any doubts that I had about, well, I, I probably being masculine, rough around the edge is not good. Now I know for sure. Now I understand that, well, actually, as a woman, apparently I should know how to walk the runway or mm. something. <laughs> you know, I should be classy. I should do these things. And so that really, again, kind of when I go back to my childhood, it's great. Traumatic, no. But yeah, I could point to something like that and, and think, well, that did really sit heavy on me. And, you know, I could only assume what psychological, I don't want to say psychological damage because it's very dramatic, but I could only assume that it did something to me. It made this shift to where, well, I know that I'm different and I know that being different is not okay because, well, why was I then forced into these classes? You mentioned your sexuality there. So how did the gender dysphoria mm. and your sexuality as a lesbian woman at the time how are they interacting with each other? How are they informing each other? And when did it get to a point where you felt the gender dysphoria was so severe that you felt transitioning was the right decision? So I would say around probably 13-ish, again, puberty. Up until that point, I, I started to really think about who I liked. I didn't think about that too much before that. And then I started having feelings for girls around that time. But I wasn't sure and I kind of pushed it away. But I, I was also pretty often on depressed. I had just not really pleasant thoughts about myself and, and life in general. But again, this could just be a 13-year-old, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that was all very confusing to me because there was always like almost a wall where I would hit with me being masculine versus me liking women. It all was confusing at the time. But honestly, I would say my dysphoria got pretty bad probably around my 20s. That was a time where I was actually trying to actively date women and hang out with lesbians. And while I, I'm not saying that those were horrible times, but that was around the time where my dysphoria, it was really getting bad. And I did try at one point in my life, I did try to be like bisexual and I did try to date men. And I can't help but think that maybe deep down, I was like trying to condition myself to liking men because again, not to blame my parents or anybody really. Well, we could blame society a little bit, I guess. <laughs> Society's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> society needs to change a little bit. But, you know, when I think about like just the expectations that are put out there constantly, right, and thrown in your face, when you hear them over and over again, you start to think, well, maybe what if, right? And, you know, this is kind of like what's happening now, right? With kids now who maybe were just like me growing up, instead of getting the same kind of questions that I was getting back then, now it's more of like, well, what if you're trans over and over again, right? So there's these things, these ideas that we get from society being thrown at us constantly. And yeah, I can't help to think that 
maybe in some way I tried to condition myself to be this way, to like men, but that didn't work. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> but yeah, to answer your question though, dysphoria wise, like it got pretty bad around, I would say my twenties. Mm. I didn't transition until like my early thirties, okay. but my twenties was a combination of drinking a lot, using drugs, cutting myself, really just thinking that I should be dead. And and just having panic attacks, which hadn't really happened before in my life. But then I started freaking out a lot of times over social situations, being the only one that I felt like was not connected to my body outside of my body, I would have a panic attack and I would cry. I remember having conversations with friends just asking them like, you know, how are you comfortable with yourself, your body? I couldn't understand that concept. And so yeah, it was really rough. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I ended up transitioning. But I also don't think that I'm true trans or anything like okay. that. And another point that I want to make, because you said when you were like a lesbian woman, is that it could be argued that I'm technically still a lesbian because sexual orientation is based on sex. Yeah, that was me trying to be as nice as possible to the to the conversation, <laughs> how you transition oh, now. But... You can't be nice. This is your show. I know, your, I know, I know. This, this is your show, so don't <laughs> I'm be trying nice to, to I'm me. trying to be as polite, <laughs> as polite as I can, man. Oh, be brutal. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to transitioning itself then, you said you did it in your early 30s. And you said to me, you wanted to go as close as possible to changing sex whilst also realizing that doing it as an act is physically impossible. So did the transition mm. alleviate the distress you were in? And then also, how did testosterone affect physical appearance, physical health and mental health? Yeah, uh, I would say testosterone did alleviate a lot. Things that I hyper-focused on before went away pretty quickly. It is nice. And I personally like that the optional transition is there. I understand how some people don't. I don't like the idea of transition for kids. But for me personally, after looking into it quite a bit and doing it, the changes that came were going back to dysphoria, right? The things that growing up I thought were going to happen or or should have happened or the things that my brain couldn't match to my body because it's female, the testosterone connected that, right? So like there was like a glitch in my system, let's say. <laughs> I'm a broken person, okay? <laughs> I've got and, a lot of broken then, people uh, on here, Mars. We're all broken. We're all broken in some way. <laughs> yeah. So, but then you take testosterone. And if you're actually somebody who has dysphoria and it's been <laughs> destroying the course of your life and you take it, there is a chance, right? And again, I, I have to emphasize chance because we don't know. So there is this chance that you get on testosterone and it might actually fix that glitch in the system and suddenly you don't get all dysphoric the way you used to. But the tricky thing is, is that you do still get dysphoric. It doesn't go away. It redirects. Mm. And then going back to the other part of your question, which I believe was like what changes came. Um, yeah. So how did it affect your mental health as well as physical, just physical appearance? Okay. Mental health. I would say, I feel like I kind of already answered that. It wasn't bad for my mental health. Personally, I was fine with it. I will say this though. Testosterone is... It's pretty powerful. <laughs> yes. That's one way to put it. It's powerful and it's a very uplifting drug. Mm. So I feel like there are very few people that will go on testosterone and be like, oh, this was a bad time. Uh, initially, it's, it's going to be good because it's going to lift you up. Right. And for somebody like me, I've always been prone to sometimes just being depressed or whatever. Like, it makes sense that it made me feel better, but also it helped with my dysphoria. But I will say it does affect your sex drive. So that part is pretty intense and I didn't think it would be that bad. 
But going to the the other part of your question, which I again forgot, physical parents, physical parents, and physical physical health, parents. Yeah. Damn it, Mars, <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> so my physical parents, yeah, I mean physically, like I basically looked in the mirror and saw what I thought should have already been there. Which I understand how that's weird for people, but growing up, there were many times where I would look in the mirror and the lights were off. Right, I would look at my reflection in the mirror as a 13, 14 year old girl in the dark. I didn't want to look at myself like in bright lights. I don't have that problem now. Clearly I'm doing YouTube and stuff. Even though I recognize that my body has scars, I've done things to my body, right? And that is a fact. But at the same time, even with all these scars and whatnot, like the reflection that I see, it kind of connects this mismatch that I've had throughout my life. In an odd way, it seems natural, even though I know it's not natural. There's a big conversation moment around medical transition, but I think what sometimes gets lost and it's something that Aaron K and Aaron T talk a lot about on transparency is social transition, which I think is something which maybe the children with gender dysphoria aren't as massively as aware of going into it. So how was the social transition for you going from a lesbian female to still a female after transition, but a trans man now? The social changes were pretty different. <laughs> where to start it was different and again like this is me speaking on my experience some people have totally different view on it for me personally it went from being kind of noticed and occasionally people opening doors for me to being essentially invisible and i'm expected to open doors (laughs) which is fine i'll open the door for you it's don't worry freddie i got you (laughs) so that change happened pretty quick right these expectations that we have so it came at me pretty fast though just the way men now interacted with me versus before it is yeah 100 i was never somebody that was super bothered by the way men interacted with me before and I say that not in a way where I'm, I'm saying I loved it, but I also, it didn't cause me trauma or anything like that. It was whatever. Yeah, I was gross sometimes, but also I just don't care. But now it's very, very much different. I definitely think it gives me a different perspective on, uh, on men, you know, because not everybody knows that I'm trans. When I'm sitting at the bar next to a couple of random dudes, I'm just a dude to yeah. them. So they don't know. They'll just start talking to me about random stuff. So I guess to answer your question, because I feel like I'm going in circles as well, the shift happens pretty fast because testosterone, like we already said, powerful drug. So, you know, my voice dropped a bit. I got some facial hair. That's it. Like people were were referring to me. Yeah, Yeah, I passed all the way. So, so yeah, it was very different. How quickly did you get used to the, the academic phrase would be hazing, but in England, we would say the male piss taking. How did you get used to that? I fucking love that shit. What are you talking about? (laughs) Damn, I said I would have cussed. See? I told I... you. I told you you would. <laughs> My bad. All right. Okay, so I won't do it again. <laughs> so I've literally always loved self-deprecating humor. I love just messing with people. In fact, I think that was a problem sometimes with some girls is that I would just, I want to roast them and some, you know, it can only go so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. no, I'll say like that no woman is like that, but it's, there are, few women that I've encountered my whole life that I can like just go hard at them and they'll just dish in and give it back. But that wasn't a problem for me. <laughs> I loved it. That's probably like one of the upsides of being in that social setting is I don't have to have a filter with guys. <laughs> I could just say the dirtiest, nastiest thing and it's fine. Yeah. And, there's um, trust. And there's that's trust. Great. <laughs> yeah, there, there's trust. Now on the flip side though, it took me a bit to realize that, oh, okay, now when I say certain things, even jokes around women, again, coming from like, they don't know that I'm trans, right? So they see a man, 
saying certain jokes around girls puts me now in a different category. Like I have to be careful because yeah, I'm not trying to sound like a misogynistic pig over here. Yeah. So it is really interesting. Like in that sense, I've had to just be cautious of my behavior around women mostly. Mm. Right. Just something as simple as like being at the grocery store and seeing a mother with a child. If the child says a five-year-old kid says hi to me, even saying hi back sometimes I'm like, Am I allowed to? Should I? Because my perception now or their perception of me now is like, right, they see a man and I don't want to come off as like a creepy pedal or something. Yeah. So those things changed a lot. But yeah, overall, my gains from testosterone, considering what I wanted out of it, did I get that for the most part? I would say yes. So given that you've been off testosterone since the end of August 2021. So why did you make that decision? So I made that choice because... I basically over probably around a whole year that I got psoriasis and I didn't really link it to testosterone originally because my psoriasis happened really close to like a breakup. And so I thought, (laughs) I thought crazy thoughts, right? So I'm like, oh, well, maybe I don't eat really healthy. Maybe that's it. Maybe the stress of a breakup finances. I thought, man, all these things, I'm just natural to think, by the way, you can, yeah, right. Yes, absolutely. So it was a fleeting thought. I did think that. Maybe it's a testosterone, but I didn't want to actually embrace that idea because obviously it's not what I want to hear. So I waited quite a bit till it got really bad. So my psoriasis got pretty unbearable. Some people have it mild, others don't. So I took pictures. I'm not going to share. Don't worry. You, I won't ask. <laughs> I, I've, I've, had, I've had skin conditions for a long time, so I'm very well yeah, aware. Yeah. yeah so, so I've taken some pictures to where you could see the before and after. And so it got pretty nasty on my mm. leg. And then it started spreading to like my face, just random spots, like my earlobe, my eyebrow, and then my scalp. And when it got to my scalp and it started like itching and burning, I was like, okay, this is actually becoming really like not a good situation. Mm. So when I first got psoriasis, everybody thought it was a spider bite, including my ex-girlfriend, you know, she was like, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. I'm like, I'm fine. I feel nothing. So I finally went to the doctor and I also asked my endocrinologist and they said, oh, it could just be a spider bite. And when I finally found out that it wasn't a spider bite and it was actually psoriasis, I went back to the endocrinologist and I asked, is there any chance that this is linked to testosterone? Because I'm trying to really figure out why I have psoriasis suddenly. And they said, it's not likely. And it kind of just dropped, right? It wasn't like this big thing. So because they said that, I was like, okay, I'll just ignore it again until August of this year. Or last year, sorry. And also, I will say, like, last year in general was just horrible for me health-wise. Like, I had a lot of wake-up calls. Like, I got COVID, then psoriasis got bad. Another thing on testosterone is my red blood cell count. It went up. So I had to donate blood every year, which I'm not scared of needles. That's not the problem. The problem is, like, or rather, the issue is that that wasn't a problem before testosterone. So there's a lot of downplaying with this stuff, right? Again, like no regrets of my transition. I'm fine with everything that's happened, but there's a lot of downplaying with the seriousness of taking something like testosterone. So I got psoriasis and also my red blood cell count went up. That wasn't an issue before testosterone. So I go off testosterone and now my psoriasis is gone. So that tells me that, okay, well, it was a testosterone. And the only thing that changed that could have dramatically caused it testosterone because I looked this up and I came across several Reddit posts is that switching from one week to two weeks to every other week could have fluctuated my hormones and done something. I don't know. I do entertain the idea of going back on testosterone and I've 
again, recognize how insane that sounds. So I don't know, maybe I will go back on it. But what I will say is going off of it has cleared up other issues. But going back to my point that I made earlier about dysphoria and how it gets redirected, right? So that's like something that I currently am dealing with. So a lot of stuff that went away with testosterone is coming back. It's being redirected to almost the beginning of my dysphoria. The difference now, of course, is that, well, I can look at myself and think, okay, well, technically I've already transitioned to such an extent that nobody sees me as a woman in society, right? So that's still there. Even though I'm not on testosterone, I'm still referred to as he, him. So then what is the problem? Why are you tripping out, Mars? And the problem is, right, it's up here, right? It's, a, it's me. I'm doing this to myself. And so I guess the odd blessing here is that not being on testosterone is forcing me to really tackle why my dysphoria ever gets triggered and how. And what can I do to stop it if, in fact, I can never go back on testosterone? Mm. So in a way, would you say that because you've come off it and you've been forced to address some of these, maybe not traumas, but maybe insecurities and things which are affecting your mental health, would you say it was almost a blessing in disguise or would you not go as far as that? Yeah, it almost is like a blessing in disguise, right? Yeah, that's that's fair. Because yeah, it's just silly stuff. Like I'm convinced my voice has changed a lot more now and I sound more female. I mean, this is insane. It really hasn't changed much. I don't ever get referred to as she, her. So these are little things, like you said, like they're probably more insecurities, but this is also the, the sort of fascinating thing to me about dysphoria is that how do we know it's not just an insecurity? What if most of this is an insecurity and gradually we just drag ourselves to a severely dysphoric point and then we go see a gender therapist and everything we describe is like dysphoria. But what if it actually is a lot of just insecurities? Let's reflect on your journey now. So first of all, how has transitioning shaped you into the person you are today and what has it taught you about yourself? I think transition is really hard. So is probably detransition, right? I think transition is hard. Seeing the transitioners go through it on this other level, it's got to be even harder. And I think that what we have in common is that we're getting through this alone in a way. So we're going through permanent changes. We're dealing with society in a completely new way. Nobody's giving us a guidebook on how to. We're figuring this out. So, I mean, you come out of it to me being, I don't want to say stronger person, but you come out of it growing. It kind of forces you to evolve. And that's, I guess, in the case that you're not just repeating certain mantras in the trans community. But otherwise, if you go into transition for you, because you want to transition for your dysphoria and your personal reasons, and in the same way you detransition for yourself, not for anybody else, then you're essentially forced to go through like some really deep analyzing of yourself. And it makes you evolve as a person. So... I think when I reflect back on the beginning stages of my transition or pre-transition, right? I don't think I knew very much. And I think I was just focused on dysphoria. But now I could say, yeah, I understand why I transitioned. But I also know now what triggers my dysphoria. I didn't really think about that back then. Because what you're thinking back then is, Everything triggers your dysphoria. You have to transition. That's how to fix it. But when that doesn't work out, you're in this place, you're forced. And honestly, even if somebody doesn't stop transition, I think after, let's say, three years of transitioning, because the first one to three years, I would say are like the pink cloud phase, 
when you're moved on from that and you're not waiting for any more changes and you're just living life, like anybody else in life, whether you're trans or not, you're going to think about who you are as a person, what you want to do, and you're going to reflect on your life. I think it's just like a fast way to skyrocket yourself into like growing up a little bit more. I say this as an old person, but still growing up. (laughs) And as a final question before we move on, if you could go back and talk to the Mars who was struggling with traditional female expectations placed on her as a teenager or the Mars who was deciding whether to come off testosterone or the Mars who was about to transition, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? That's a heavy question. I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) I guess I would say, honestly, I guess what I would say is don't beat yourself up too much. It sounds so cliche, but I think we forget that being a teenager sucks, you know, and (laughs) nobody knows who the hell they are. I think that's probably the, the most I would say is like, just enjoy life. I don't think I enjoyed life very much through my teen years or even my 20s. I feel like I really just lived in my head and I just beat myself up constantly because I wasn't a certain way because damn it, I'm a female because damn it, you know, this girl doesn't like me back. I would just say, yeah, just don't beat yourself up too much. And I feel like a lot of people do that, especially dysphoric teenagers, even adults. We're just so hard on ourselves and nobody has this figured out. No one. But the most important thing is like, who are you doing this for? Because I shouldn't be transitioning because I want Freddie to validate me, right? So if I'm going through this, it should be my personal journey that will bring me to a better place, hopefully, and not a worse one. We've talked about your own journey, Mars. I want to talk now about the work you do as a commentator, advocate in this trans space through your YouTube and your podcast channels. So firstly, how and why did this journey begin and why did you want to do it in the first place too, given the toxicity of the conversation? That's a good question. I actually don't like being on camera and I don't like attention, but I put myself out there, which is odd. But I kind of got to a point where I just got so frustrated and I wanted to add something to the conversation. And I mean, doing a podcast on YouTube is a good way, right? Twitter is great. But I wanted to tackle all these other areas. I suppose what uh, drove me to do that was my frustration with how much communicating I could do on Twitter, right? I started on Twitter. I mean, I've been in this trans discourse for probably like four years now, maybe. And I met a lot of other trans people like me who are frustrated with trans activism that were voicing their thoughts on, on Twitter. But around the end of 2018... I think that's when it was. I got really just fed up. I left Twitter and then I came back around December of that year with the idea of just having a podcast with a friend of mine who I'm still friends with, but he doesn't co-host the podcast anymore. I just do it on my own. But my idea was just two trans men venting about stuff, sharing their experience. So that was what I was going to do. I was just going to do a podcast. That was it. I didn't want to put my face out there. But over time... I was basically convinced by Rose of Dawn that I should really also do YouTube. And I caved to that idea, and yeah. I, which it turned out she was right. Okay, she was right. <laughs> I owe her a beer. It was smart. I mean, it definitely gets my voice out there in a different way. And also sometimes people prefer audio. Other people prefer just watching, you know, in an, in an interview. Jesus Christ, sorry. And, I'll um, keep that in. <laughs> 
Oh wow, that you're not gonna edit. <laughs> <laughs> I normally Thanks. edit all filler, but I'll keep that bit in just because yeah, yeah, just because yeah. the laugh at yeah. the end. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Yeah, Mars he stumbles all the time. What a <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. it's cool. Yeah, so that's how that happens, and I mean it's been good. I'm really bad with figuring out how to make videos and editing. Trust me, like I never would have thought that I was gonna be doing YouTube, and if I ever did do something on YouTube, because I've always been drawn to film, but to do YouTube <laughs> that's focused on mostly trans activism is trust me that was never in the cards for me but you're kind of forced to either voice your thoughts or just sit in silence and if i don't say anything it feels like i'm applauding everybody and cheering them on right like and i don't want to do that i want other people to know not just ordinary people but also like trans activists i want them to know that they're not the voice of all of us and they're wrong sometimes and I'm just not going to sit here in silence. I, that's just it. Mm. And I really hope that, again, we're coming into a new year. I really hope that other people are essentially influenced by me speaking out because I'm I'm shooting myself in the foot. I get nothing out of this, right? I get hated by all sides. And so I really think we're at a point where everybody needs to just add in their two cents because things are really bad and they're going to get worse. But they might actually not get so bad if more people just stand up and say, you know what, actually, we're not okay with this. This is crazy. Mm. You said to me, your mental health is impacted in two ways. One, by the lack of testosterone or coming off the testosterone. So your dangerous for it is, like you said, a bit more intense than it was before. And the other is the state of trans activism at the moment. So how does that impact your mental health then? Well, it, it actually <laughs> does obvious, impact it a lot. Here, but I'll let you just, I'll let yeah. you say it. <laughs> no, it is obvious, but it's just frustrating because look, I hate hypocrites and I hate liars. And the biggest thing that I see with these trans activists is exactly that. They're hypocrites and they're lying. And by doing that, not only are they causing harm to children, but eventually going to cause harm to us, right? I live in a world where I could be a trans person out and for the most part, I'm not getting hate. I'm not saying that there aren't people who maybe wouldn't want to kill me or something like that. But for the most part, my interactions with people, even sometimes I can tell that they might be uncomfortable because I'm trans. They're still pretty respectable mm. to me. So I don't want that to all go away because we're going to create, and we are, we're creating a society where people can't stand trans active or not trans active. We're creating a society where people can't stand transgender people because they hate us and resent us because of all the harm that we're doing and the lies what the, which is what exactly the lies what's happening plank that was advocate what are the lies well then? the lies are like that trans women are women trans men are men puberty blockers are safe that putting trans women competing against females in sports is totally fair these are lies these are all flat out lies and we repeat them because we think it's coming from a compassionate place we think that you're making me feel good about myself, but why is Freddie responsible for how I feel about myself? I'm not responsible. And furthermore, for like, <laughs> you're not. I mean, I can I try, know, but look, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> I look, I look I, ju I just met you and I don't want you to be responsible. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, yeah, these are all, and, and the crazy part is that, you know, a lot of this is deemed to be like either scientific or anti-trans. And, and it's insane because purity blockers, that's not safe. And they're not reversible, which is another thing that they want us to believe. I would say those are the biggest lies that we see. And like I said, it's causing way more harm than good. And I understand how some people probably already resent and can't stand trans people because I myself am impacted by all this. This impacts my mental health because I constantly have to think about what I believe to be true. 
I have to look at this, what they're saying and think, is it me? Am I the one that's wrong? Am I crazy? Is it me? And that puts me, I mean, imagine, right? Like a dysphoric person is already a little crazy. And so now I have to think about all this other stuff. Dude, it's it's just too much. It's overwhelming. Mm. And so I have to take breaks because it really does bring me down mm. because I don't want to be up against like a trans <laughs> army, which is basically what it feels like. I'm up against all these people who apparently I have something in common with. And these people are telling me that I'm transphobic. I'm a horrible person, that I'm causing the murder of trans kids and all this stuff. That's terrible. Like at some point, for the most part, I have thick skin and I just laugh this stuff off and I move on. But I mean, sometimes, you know, they get you on a day where you just, you woke up on the wrong side of bed. So, right. So hearing this shit, I cursed again, sorry. So hearing this like (laughs) 20 to 40 times in a day, sometimes it really does bring you to a dark place Mm. and it's not good. And I know I'm not the only person that gets this, right? Like I talked about Rosa Dawn. I know for her, it gets sometimes too much. Debbie gets it as well. Oh, like, yeah. Horrific stuff. It's way too much. Right. Hearing that, Mars, a lot of my listeners aren't, let's say, well-versed in this conversation. So when they hear someone like you, a trans man, saying, I get called transphobic by these people, they might be very, very confused. So do you think a, I guess the most politically correct phrase would be normies here, think people like you don't exist? Or they think that people like you aren't possible to hold these views? And does that annoy you? I guess it does annoy me a little bit. I do think, well, generally normies don't keep up with the trans (laughs) discourse. And they go off of what they see in the media. So to them, what they see is the GameStop ma'am situation, right? They see mostly trans women. I think normies forget that there is such a thing as a female to male. They mostly just see these transgender women taking up female spaces and women's sports. So that kind of becomes what the normies know. So it does kind of bother me a little bit. I've met people in in real life where they find out that I'm trans and I can tell that they're talking to me, but I could tell that they're kind of filtering some of what they say, right? And then when I start talking openly and being critical of just anything, right? Then they loosen up. Yeah. And then eventually it comes out. Eventually there's always a moment where like, yeah, I didn't think that uh, you would believe those things. And, you know, like it, they're just blown away. Like, oh, my God, I'm an individual with my own thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so that does happen. Right. Yeah. But then there's other moments where uh, like at my previous job last year, I worked at this one job temporarily and I knew I was going to do that temporarily. So I didn't bother getting too personal with people. So occasionally they would talk about trans stuff around me. And I would kind of egg them on because I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear what they say. I just say things like, oh yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Those, those transgenders. Right. And then they would open up. Right. And I could tell yet again, it's not that they hate and wish harm on trans people, but I could already tell that these normies are getting fed up. Right. And they're, and it's funny cause they were like basically whispering, like we're at work, they're whispering, they're like, telling me stuff like it's like which is weird why are you whispering we should be able to say this out loud but they're whispering obviously yeah exactly absolutely but they're telling me this stuff you know they're they're just saying very basic common sense stuff right like this girl was telling me i think it's so wrong for transgender women to be competing in sports and i'm just like yeah i agree with you (laughs) like (laughs) like (laughs) you know we agree right so she didn't know i was trans but she said these things and she would always go back to making this point clear right she would express her concerns and then she would say but i honestly don't hate trans people i don't have a problem with Mm. people i I think people should do whatever they want but i also just don't think this is okay which was interesting because she didn't know i was trans but she kept like putting this out there 
And so what I see with normies, the consensus that I see anyways, is people don't think it's okay. They're scared to voice their opinion because they don't want to be canceled, like you said, or called transphobic. But they also don't want me to like be thrown off a rooftop, <laughs> like which is you know obviously a relief. But yeah, that's kind of what I see, and it is frustrating, and it does make me sad because again, I like I'm a human being, so getting bullied sometimes it does get to me, and also hearing normies talk about trans people the way they do also kind of gets to me too. It, it is sad. I don't want them to feel any sort of I guess not disgust, but just fear. Uh, it's fear as well. Yeah. Fear, fear. Yeah. Sorry, that's thank you for helping me, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I think listeners, if you want a real life example of the relief that Mars was talking about. Just go watch a clip of Flame on Road doing a comedy set because that is real relief <laughs> yes, when, exactly. they hear, when they hear Flame yes. talking about stuff. <laughs> and Flame is a, is a trans woman comedian and boy, she, she owns her shit. She really does. Yeah, she owns it. <laughs> yep. She does not care to pander to any of it. She's like, yeah, I'm a man that does this sometimes and so what? And also the, this is just how I am and... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Her, her bit also, about, also, go, sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just gonna say also somebody that's called transphobic. Yes, yeah. I, I was just gonna say I love yeah. her bit about how she can fool some people, and uh, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Oh my god, I, was, I think this I've watched totally that like off. seven times. But it's so good. <laughs> yeah, I've laughed at that yeah, so no, hard. It's great. This is completely off topic, but I have to ask: Is that Mac Miller in the back? It is. Yeah, that, that's, that's Mac okay. Miller I was album. gonna say, yeah. dude, that's that's amazing. I'm I'm not obsessed with Mac Miller. <laughs> that's awesome. I kept looking at it. I was like, it's it's, it's a far away. It's a stunning art album. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, that's what exactly like what I thought. I was like, is that really? My, it's one of his lyrics. I was like, I've got as an affirmation. <laughs> yeah. In my, in my uh, okay. I was like, man, I'm really vibing with Freddie. And then I saw Mac Miller. I was like, yep, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move right on, on to uh, another controversial person. But you've done a video on. Mars, which is Dave Chappelle. And as I said in the intro, he came into the crossfire of trans rights activists recently at time of recording through his last stand-up special, The Closer. So they accused him of being transphobic with the comedy material and they criticised him for defending J.K. Rowling too. Now this is despite the fact that he actually says at the end of his set a very moving story about a trans comedian that he knew, which I don't know if it's 100% correct, but I think she took her own life and there was some either rumor or there was some discussion about whether she was bullied online or bullied by yeah. activists. I, I don't know 100% on that, so I'm not going to say either way. But in any case, it was a horrific case and a really tragic story. So you did a video mm. disagreeing with them and basically supporting Dave Chappelle. So can you tell the listeners what Dave said, first of all, who haven't watched it, and then your view on it? Well, first of all, Dave Chappelle is not transphobic. He's actually a really funny comedian. But one of the things that he really... Uh, got into with the his uh, stand-up set on Netflix, The Closer, was he agreed with J.K. Rowling. And he said, he was quoting her, but I don't believe that J.K. Rowling ever said gender is a fact. I believe what she said was like sex. Yeah, I think he got that um, slightly wrong. But yeah, the message he got that was slightly he was wrong. saying, yeah. Right, but I understood what he was saying. He was agreeing with J.K. Rowling about sex. And obviously nothing transphobic about that. But even if he hadn't added anything else, right? Just that, that one bit is enough to <laughs> cause these protests that happened against Dave Chappelle in, in Los Angeles, yeah. right? He was said he was team um, turf as well to, for the listeners. He was so team a bit more turf. Insane, that was a bit more of a, a poke in the bear sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that was one of the things that he talked about. And then he made some jokes about trans women. And then he ended his set talking about his friend who's you know no, no longer alive. And... It's amazing that nobody really ever mentioned that, right? That that was never the focus. The focus was entirely on how dare Dave Chappelle 
agree for even a moment with J.K. Rowling. So they completely ignore the fact that he actually paid his respects to a transgender woman. This is a comedian with like millions of followers. And that should be something that we should be, I mean, I'm happy that he put her up there. But also like you were saying, you know, it's kind of like speculated that she was bullied and that's why she took her life. And maybe that was the reason or maybe that added to the reason. But I will say this, like, it's not hard to believe that couldn't be a part of it because I get it sometimes. And it, like I said, it does suck. You know, it does something to your mental health. But also, let's not forget that cancel culture is brutal. And it was like a couple of years ago where I forget her name, but it was a porn star was basically speaking out against doing sex scenes with a gay man. She felt uncomfortable with this for her health reasons or whatever. And she was dragged all over Twitter and then took her life. So, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that bullying people doesn't cause them to take their life. So I think that it certainly did add something to it. But again, it's telling that it doesn't matter if you're trans, right? These people are evil, in my opinion. Like these trans activists will say things like trans is beautiful. Trans rights are human rights. But, you know, we have to believe every trans person. We have to like love every trans person until you don't follow gender ideology. And now you're nothing. And now you you actually deserve the worst. I mean, look at India Willoughby. Yep. She recently said horrible things about Debbie Hayton, a transsexual woman who goes around saying the truth, right? Like she'll say Debbie Hayton because Debbie Debbie Hayton will say things like trans women are men. Well, that's enough for India Willoughby, who is very popular in the UK, I believe, like probably the most popular transgender woman. It could be argued, yeah. Yeah. She tweeted out that Debbie Hayton should, this was like slang for you guys yeah, so I, it's, I it's a very weird <laughs> slang by the way i don't think we use that we don't use that a lot in england okay yeah, well I, I won't yeah. repeat the phrase but she yes, but, basically said right. that she should die in other words right basically yeah we don't have to repeat it but yeah, yeah basically that's what she tweeted right and so that to me is actually like inciting something like violence mm. and wanting somebody to harm themselves right but me talking about how trans men are biological females that is actually the harm it's, I mean, the difference there is, is huge. For the listeners as well, that trans comedian that we spoke about was called Daphne Dorman. So rest in peace to Daphne Dorman or rest in power. I want to move on to children with gender dysphoria and this conversation. Miles. This is something that I'm really passionate about. And it's why I think I probably went down the rabbit hole when it comes to this conversation, because I saw what was happening to kids. Can you tell me what your perspective is on the general conversation around children who are experiencing gender dysphoria? The way that they're uh, treating dysphoric kids is based on stereotypes. So because a little boy prefers to occasionally, let's say, wear a dress, that little boy is apparently already going to fit the category of being a trans kid. There's no such thing as a trans kid. We adults create that concept because gender nonconforming kids typically grow up to be lesbian, you know, gay, like homosexuals. And vast majority, yeah. Some might be gender performing right? straight kids, but most will be. Yeah, yeah so that, yeah. yeah, no, thank you for saying that. That as well. But we're basically what I've been seeing is that we're going off of these stereotypes. We're saying that, well, this little boy prefers to play with stereotypical girly stuff. So there's a chance that this little boy might just be a girl. So let's take them to the gender therapist and see what they say. Well, the problem with that is that. We're not looking at the reasons why somebody is gender nonconforming. We're looking at a dysphoric kid and connecting that with trans. 
And I hope that answers your question. But that's kind of like what I see is that it's just a, a stereotype. We're lumping kids into these stereotypes. And there's a lot of, like you were saying, gender nonconforming kids. So how do we know when a kid is just gender nonconforming or when a kid is going to grow up to transition and be a, a trans adult? Mm. How do we know that? There's no way to know that test unless you let a kid just be a kid and grow up and then they'll later decide to do whatever they want, right? Like they'll either transition as adult or they won't. But as it stands right now, what we're saying is, this is what we're saying in my opinion, is that there's really no such thing as a gender nonconforming kid because every non gender nonconforming kid is going to be a trans kid. Mm. How do you see this impacting, for example, butch lesbians? So I think it impacts butch lesbians and I do think it impacts gay men as well, but I think it seems to be impacting butch lesbians a lot more. And again, I transitioned as an adult, but even I could pinpoint like, uh, when I was uh, in my early transition, I reconnected with a friend of mine from way back in the day and they are now trans too. Okay. Then I got curious and I just went back on Facebook and, you know, started to look through mutuals to see, right. Because there was a point in my life where I would hang out with a group of lesbians. So I, I got curious and I was like, I wonder how many more are there? <laughs> and so I was able to find, you know, at least let's say at the most five or less than five. Okay. And to me, that's kind of still a big number mm. within the social circle that I was in. And what that tells me is that if there's like some kind of weird, maybe social contagion that could happen, to adults, to butch lesbians, then yeah, why wouldn't that be happening with kids? Do you think that it's now re-stigmatizing butchness in a way that perhaps maybe was there, but not as prominent in say the mid noughties or even yes. the late tens? Yeah, I think it's causing a lot of harm because we're forgetting that butch lesbians even exist yeah. or that feminine men even exist, mm. right? And one of my jobs as well, like effeminate gay men. They're yeah. some of the most stigmatized people in society. So these normies that we talked about uh, before on, this, on your show. So like normies, for example, right? If what you're constantly feeding normies is that being a feminine man is trans and being a butch lesbian is trans, then we're essentially just erasing any, <laughs> any chance for anybody to be a gender nonconforming butch lesbian or, or, or gay man. And so like these normies that I worked at one of my jobs last year, sometimes we would see a customer come through and they were just a butch lesbian. To me, like, I was like, there's no indication there. Like, I shouldn't assume mm. they're a trans man. But I would see normies assume this. They would say things like, oh, I think that's a, that's a trans man. And they would do the same thing with gay men, right? Because a guy is very feminine, because maybe he has long hair, they would be like, I think this person's a trans woman. Like, that's where a normal person's brain is going now because we're programming program programming them sorry this has happened a lot on the channel um <laughs> but yeah we're putting this out there right so like now that's all they're seeing which is terrible because we're essentially erasing butch lesbians we're erasing feminine men and we're saying that in order to be feminine as a man you must become a woman and that is that's, Ooh, I mean, that's, that's terrible i mean that's quite yeah. homophobic when you think about it really oh absolutely homophobic yeah when it comes to detransitioners, Mars, you've interviewed a few and we've both interviewed detransitioners on our podcast and it really is shocking and surprising to me. I guess not surprising, not surprising is the right word, but people are surprised, I should say, by the concept of detransition. So how do you view it? And when you're seeing 
more detransitioners come out and be advocates, does that worry you? Is there going to be more to come? Because that's the feeling that I'm getting. Yeah, it does worry me a lot for several reasons. The first reason being, it worries me that it's happening, right? Like it shouldn't be happening, especially to such the degree that it is. I mean, I can't imagine what that's like, mm. but it's awful seeing it happen in real time. Like it's just constantly happening. You can't go on YouTube and look up D-Trans and not see a new video. There's a new detransitioner that comes on YouTube, like whatever, once a month maybe. But it also worries me because, I mean, yeah, the biggest concern with this that trans people typically have is that they're going to weaponize detransitioners against trans people. And, you know, I kind of understand where they're coming from because with like the religious right, that could very well happen. It could. But because that could happen, and it might, it shouldn't be reason to just completely neglect that there's an issue with detransitioners. And there was a trans man that I had seen on YouTube several times. Actually, I followed them. It was like the only trans man that put out a video supporting the things that Jordan Peterson was saying several years back. And they were in their 20s. They were very young, but they were saying things that were spot on. And I thought, wow, this is a smart trans guy that's thinking for himself. And sometime around, I believe it was last year, early last year, they DM me and they, they're like, don't tell anybody yet, but... I do have plans to detransition. And I mean, honestly, my heart dropped because mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, if him as well, this was different because this was like somebody that I'm not saying that I knew him and we're best buds, but this was somebody that I had actually on my channel. They were a trans man on my channel. And then later on, they were a detrans on my channel. I can't really even articulate the feeling that I got from that. It was kind of like something along the lines of like, I, I felt heartbroken about it and not heartbroken because, oh, I lost, you know, a trans yeah, guy or sure. something like that. But just heartbroken because this is a good person. Mm. I wouldn't want them to go through this. And they are. And, they have to and they're going choices. through it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it just sucks. And I hate seeing that over and over again. I hate seeing these young women basically grow up, right? Because that's the problem here is that we're allowing young kids. And I say kids, but you know, I even include 18-year-olds in that. Like 18-year-olds don't know anything, okay? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so we're allowing, we're allowing these babies to do what they want with their bodies. And by the time they're in their mid-20s, they're saying that they wish they had kids, they want to have a family. And that makes sense because that's called growing up, right? <laughs> they didn't know anything. They didn't know they wanted a family. And then they grew up and, and now suddenly they're like, well, actually what I want in life is a family. And like to see that constantly being ripped away really does something to me. Mm. And I think part of it is, unfortunately, and I have to admit this on camera, but I do believe that part of it is, I get this question sometimes from some of my followers. They're like, do you think that you're so drawn to like talking about how women are getting hurt with all this because you were a woman at one point in your life and all this? And I get that question. And yeah, I do think that's a part of it. I do think that I feel deeper or I feel deeply about this issue even more so than your, I guess, average person because A, I'm trans and B, I'm female. And so when I see these young girls go through this, it does something to me. It really does. Mm. It like it does a number on me. I hate that I care, but I do. I generally do care. It's not fair. And I know eventually it's going to explode and they're going to, these medical experts are going to have to answer to it. But in the meantime, it just feels so isolating and lonely to just watch this happening over and over again. It's like, how many times have I heard this detransitioner story? 
Oh yeah, I inter- interviewed somebody earlier this year. They said the same things, same qualities, and now look, same yeah. behaviors, right. like trauma in it's, the past, it, and or autism terrible. or something like a neurological condition, or parents yeah. are abusive or something like this. Yeah, you just hear it. It's like a checklist, and you can just keep checking them off. It absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, it, it sucks. My podcast, Mars, as you know, is about helping everyone, but especially men and boys. And one thing that I found really hard to do with this topic is get or encourage or have detransition males to come on the podcast. And it seems like the stigma is, yes, very high amongst detransition women, but also just ridiculously high in detransition men. And I can't even imagine what you must be going through if you are a man who transitioned and you had... I don't even want to even say it out, but you know, at the worst, you could have your testicles removed or you could have something changed downstairs to make you appear or make you present as, as a female and then detransition yeah. back. Have you spoken to any of them? What are the conversations you've been having, if that's possible? Thanks for bringing that up because you reminded me there is somebody I'm trying to reach out to <laughs> to interview uh, about that. I've only spoken to, off the top of my head, I think I've spoken spoken to one maybe two i've tried i've spoken to one and i couldn't get them on which is completely fine they wanted to be more private but yeah i've i've really struggled to find any any, to be honest but i know that they're out very hard i know they're out there yeah they they absolutely are out there it is harder to come across a male that that detransitioned and i do think it's because of a couple of reasons one is i think it is easier for again because testosterone is a powerful drug right it's easier for them to detransition and just go back and blend into society than it is for a female that detransition because a female detransition, your voice doesn't go back, right? Like, so these things matter. But I also think that there is probably a huge level of shame. Mm, the masculinity uh, angle that comes, is emasculating stuff. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Right. There, there's, there's all this shame around that because like what's less masculine mask. Oh my God. I can't talk. <laughs> what is more demasculate? emasculating emasculating god lee thank you my man (laughs) yeah so yeah i'm thinking that that has to be it which sucks because sometimes i wonder and i do think still that probably women are being impacted more by this but then i wonder how many young boys or men are the numbers could be pretty high we we don't know but they go back to live their life and they don't really speak out so it is kind of tough but I know they're out there, but I do think a big part of it is just the shame, mm. you know, the amount of crap they're going to get from men. Because like women are more likely to be understanding about women that detransition. Yes. Men aren't going to come in like that. They're just going to be like, wow, yeah. like, you did that to yourself, you know, like you're like, what's, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, just I think, roast I think there's going to be a lot of confusion. And I think as well, I'm trying to put my mind in, in theirs. So if they transition, they might have to like leave their male social group particularly if they try to present or socially transition into into being a female but then when you detransition back how do you go about re-entering that male social group will they feel uncomfortable with you will they feel able to kind of talk to you in the way that boys talk with boys there's all these issues that i'm kind of thinking about and i've just got no idea what they would be going through and that's probably that's probably some of the things that they've they're experiencing which means that they don't want to talk about it publicly I mean, just think about how heterosexual men are typically uncomfortable around hanging out with a, a group of gay men, right? I imagine it's similar to that. They're just going to be like uncomfortable and not be as loose and open with them because they feel like they might be something else. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it sucks, but uh, I don't know how that could change without maybe the trans males coming out and just like being vocal about it and just not being fearful. But I also understand like how that's easier said than done. Yeah. It's social suicide, basically. For, yeah. for men, to me, it's social suicide 
when they detransition for women i don't think it's social suicide in in such a way i think that they social gain... media suicide <laughs> Some social media out, suicide. <laughs> yeah yeah you're out of the trans community you're no no longer cool right but you know detrans women are likely to gain a new set of friends a new social group but with detrans men i can't imagine that's easy at all mm. what would you say then playing devil's advocate when people say the reason that these girls or boys are detransitioning is transphobia that they've had either threats made against them or, or something along those lines which means that they are now being forced to detransition or it's their parents forcing them to or something along those lines and it's not their own personal autonomy and choice to do so yeah it seems to be the most popular reason as to why the detransition exists is lack of support and internalized transphobia which is pretty insane i don't think that's the key reason behind it i understand how support is a big deal though because transition is hard having support of any kind that does make a difference but it's not the transphobia and actually it's interesting that they frame it like that because the reasons behind transition for a lot of these young kids are homophobic <laughs> not transphobic they're homophobic yet trans activists don't see that they don't see that they're coming into it with these like gender stereotypes and homophobia then they detransition and they're accused of having like internalized transphobia. And that's why they detransition because they're, they're transphobic. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. But that's kind of, I'm just trying what, to put what, what the I, opposite I argument there, but I, I find it hard to kind of get my head around because then if you're saying that, then who's true trans and who's not? Well, the idea of true trans doesn't really exist to trans activists that are pushing gender ideology by them saying that somebody is detransitioning because of, lack of support and um, internalized transphobia, that doesn't shatter the belief system they have. And that's kind of like what I think is why they say certain things, because they believe that gender identity is innate. They believe that you are who you say you are. And they believe that transition is like the key to unlocking like some magical world or something. So when people detransition and you're redirecting them to look the other way for other reasons, not to look at anything about the trans community. It's not coming from us. We're not saying anything that's wrong. No, absolutely. The medical experts know exactly what they're saying. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't get anything wrong. It's entirely the fault of the parents or that person actually was following Blair White and therefore they have internalized transphobia, which is why they detransitioned. That's what they want us to believe, but we know what the truth is. I like Blair White. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think she's great. <laughs> controversial statement but uh i do too <laughs> let's reflect on your journey when it comes to trans advocacy then mars so doing these interviews having these conversations having these conversations with yourself by putting these videos out on youtube what have they taught you about yourself um that's a good question i would say i think the guests are what teach me about myself so i give full credit to anybody that came onto my channel, like had a conversation. I mean, making the videos that has helped my journey a little bit. And it's also fun doing it sometimes, but I don't know if you can relate to this. Having a conversation with someone else always unlocks some kind of door, right? Something that I wasn't thinking would, would come up. So now I'm thinking deeply about this one thing that I'd maybe never thought about before. And maybe I would have never thought of before, but I had this conversation with Freddie and now I'm thinking about this and it's making me realize some things. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't know if it's cheesy, but it is a cool feeling to like interact with a complete stranger on my podcast and for them to take me down this road. And along the way, not only am I learning things about them, but now 
they're teaching me something about me without even trying. And that to me is like the best thing. Our final topic of conversation, Mars, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, as we come into 2022 at time of recording, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? It's doing okay. <laughs> Six out of ten, five as... out of ten, seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to be like new year, new me and all this stuff, but <laughs> I do my best to keep up with my mental health and not go down this rabbit hole of, of putting myself down and beating myself up. But I mean, okay, I'm not going to talk about COVID stuff. So that does something to my mental health. But separate from that, the trans stuff does something too. Mm. So th- these are two, for me personally right now, the two greatest threats to my mental health are the sort of regulations that they push with COVID. And then also the things that I'm not supposed to say about trans, trans issues. And, and then finally, my situation, right? We know that I'm taking a break from testosterone or maybe never going back on it. Regardless of the fact, at some point this year, my plan is to see a therapist again, see a totally different therapist and have somebody to talk to about this stuff. And I guess until then, my mental health, I would just say it's okay. Like I said, there are things that really affect my mental health and I recognize what they are. So I have to be cautious of that and find ways to manage my mental health. But ultimately, I want to see a therapist to hopefully better my situation. But because of how politicized everything is, it's going to be tricky finding a therapist that can be completely real with me and not just validate me. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I would say I started to learn about this a little bit around my late 20s and that is full credit to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> like, <laughs> Listen, there's only so many things I learned in that group and that was one of them. You know, That was the first time where I was able to understand that the way I feel, I couldn't control that. It made me self-aware a little bit more, but you know, that only did so much. And um, I've been growing up really, really late in life. Okay. So <laughs> even though I'm in my thirties, I'm still learning. I would say like, it probably wasn't until like the thirties that I started to really become even more self-aware, mm. which is crazy, but I just don't think everybody gets there at the same time. 100%. Yeah. But I think most people get there probably mid twenties and after that. I'm getting there, Freddie. That's, that's fair. There's, there's no right or wrong age, Mars. There's no right or wrong age. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Can you tell me about the first conversation as well you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? How did it feel? And looking back, did it feel like a part of you had changed or a burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it seem like something quite normal and insignificant and easy to do? You're talking about the first conversation I had about my mental health in a, in a positive light or in, or like in any in light, positive, negative, and can be a therapist or not either. could be anyone. Oh man, I don't want to go back there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if we're going to go back to that, that would probably be when I really actually hated myself and I really just wanted to die. And that conversation was not healthy, but it was something along the lines of like, <laughs> I think I was talking to a friend at the time, or maybe an ex, and I was just saying stuff like, yeah, no, it was kind of depressing, but I was basically just like crying and talking about how I felt mm. horrible, right? And how I just wanted to put a gun to my head and, and kill myself. And they talked me out of it. 
And also I didn't have a gun, but, (laughs) but my point here is that in that situation, I felt like I was adding nothing of value to the world. I felt like I was complete human trash and nothing that I was doing was making the planet a better place. I had no sense of direction. I had no purpose, actually. That, that's a big one for me because that's one of the things I did learn over time is that purpose is a pretty good reason for people to keep going. So yeah, in that moment, that's, that was probably the, the first time that I really opened up and was vulnerable to somebody was admitting like I just didn't want to be alive and then talking me out of it or just talking to me got me out of it, which I won't say that I got it perfect after that. And I didn't feel like that ever again. But what I will say is that in that moment, when somebody's talking to you and treating you like a human being that matters, you start thinking, well, they think that I matter and what they're saying makes sense. So maybe everything that I'm feeling right now is actually just temporarily and this too shall pass. So moving on from that, then what triggers do you find that affect your mental health. So it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be a piece of literature, it could be anything you want, or have you not figured all of them out yet? So something that triggers my mental health, yeah. basically. The sound of your voice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> touché, touché. I'll leave no. that in. <laughs> Damn it. All right. That's a good question. I got, I would say like, I just don't like liars. <laughs> That triggers... So lies. Um, lies is a big one then. Lies is a big one because it makes me feel really upset. Mm. And then it makes me feel like I'm going crazy because I'm like, wait, no, they just lied. And I say this, I think, coming from like when so-called medical experts lie to us, right? About the stuff that we were talking about earlier. When they're saying things like, oh yeah, puberty blockers, it's reversible. It's totally cool. Like things will go back. Yeah, that does trigger something because... It makes me feel insane mm. <laughs> because I know what you're saying is a lie. So I would say that that's a big one for me is that, I don't know, I could get affected sometimes by insults, mm-hmm. but to me, it's these experts saying things that are not true that does affect me. But then also to kind of like put myself out there and be honest, I guess on your show here is a, when I'm not doing certain things that I know make me feel good. That does it too, right? Like, so if I wake up at 11 a.m. and I lay in bed for like three hours just on my phone, I already know that this is a bad start to my day. I'm still going to do it, even though I'm admitting it here, by the way. But (laughs) like, I know this is bad because now I'm feeling like a lazy piece of shit. I'm going to start my day late. And when I get up, I'm going to be like, damn, I have to do this. I would have had so many more hours if I had just gotten out of bed at 8 a.m. So it's kind of like these little patterns that I have that I sometimes do still, even though I'm talking about them, that puts me in a raw place because like I said, it's finding purpose. Like to me, like uh, we could talk about why are we on this planet forever? Like, is there a God, all these things. But I mean, to me, all of that is irrelevant because at the end of the day, what I'm doing with my life and my purpose is what keeps me going. So when I get out of bed late and I start my day on a lazy note, I lose my purpose. I'm like scatterbrained. I'm like, oh my God, maybe I just shouldn't do anything. Like screw everything. I'll just drink the rest of the day. I'm not going to do this. You know what? Do I want to go to work? I notice like it's like a pattern of negative thoughts and negative thoughts obviously make you feel bad, right? And it affects your mental health. So it's kind of like the second you wake up, finding purpose for that day, even if it's the small little things, right? My purpose today is going to be get out of bed, go to the gym and eat healthy. 
and then go have fun with a friend. Obviously, that's not a deep purpose, but you're finding a reason to do things. Because I find when I do less in a day and I wake up late, like I said, my brain is all over the place. I'm more likely to beat myself up. I'm more likely to feel like I'm not adding anything to society. And so I think everything goes back for me anyways is purpose. Without purpose, my mental health is absolute garbage. Conversely then, what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked? The ones that work is going to the gym when you don't want to go to the gym. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that one always works. It's terrible because I, I won't always do it. I have poor discipline and that's actually something I want to work more on. But it's just one thing I've noticed is when you don't want to do something, but you know you should do it, that means you should do it, right? So like going to the gym, I don't want to go today. Why? Well, it's snowing outside. Eh, it's already too late. Maybe there's going to be too many people. These are all excuses. And all of these excuses will eventually make me feel like crap because in a few hours when I don't go to the gym, I'm actually going to be beating myself up and feeling bad. So I think it's just doing little things that helps me. I know that when I'm having a rough week, and by that, I mean a week where I don't feel mentally in a good place, which eventually leads me to dysphoria, right? So this is all connected. When I wake up and I have no purpose and I'm just lazy, I get stuck in my head. When I get stuck in my head, what happens next? Oh, that's right. I start remembering that I have dysphoria. And when I have dysphoria, I start actually feeling really bad about myself. Now I actually just hate myself. So if everything is tied together, and I believe this to be true of everybody, this isn't just like a trans person. I think that we all have patterns and we learn them as we grow up, right? And when we know these patterns and recognize them, we can stop them, which is honestly not a big fan of growing old. But the cool thing about growing old is learning these patterns and catching them. So when I have a negative thought about myself, I can catch it. I know that I'm thinking bad, right? This wasn't something that happened at 13. When you're thinking like you're a piece of crap at 13, that seems normal and seems right. Like you're like, yeah, I suck. That's right. <laughs> but when you grow up, you recognize these patterns. And for me, it's like the very slightest things. Okay, well, what did I do today that I should have done? I should have gone to the gym. And then it's also, well, rewarding yourself because not everything has to be this chore, right? Like you don't have to just do things that you have to do, or rather you shouldn't go through your whole day just doing things that you are supposed to do to keep your mental health in check. You should also reward yourself. So yeah, I got out of bed and I did a few things that I know I should do that will help my mental health, but also I should just do. And then finally end my day with something that I want to do because it feels good. So I would say it's that. Hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> I've got two questions left, mate. So the first one is, what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? So it could be mental health related. It could be not. This is like the worst question you've asked me. <laughs> well, this is one of the easier ones. <laughs> I know, right? But now everybody will know the truth here. I actually have a really bad habit of not finishing a book. I have a terrible habit of buying books. <laughs> and the idea of reading sounds really great. But then I get like past like maybe one chapter and I stop. So one of the things I am going to do this year is read more so I can answer questions like this because <laughs> I couldn't really answer that. There are very few books that I've finished in life. I guess like mental health wise would be seven habits of something highly effective people. Oh, uh, okay. I think I know the one you mean. Yeah, yeah. That was a good read. I mean, not to sound cliche here or, <laughs> but Jordan Peterson's 12 rules it's come up before good. that was Sinead's. Okay. yeah okay oh really okay well yeah that was another good one i mean you know he pointed out some obvious stuff but maybe i needed to hear it i will say that book helped 
I think that's that's just about it. Those are the only two books that stand out where I read and I was like, okay, I, sh- I could change this. I could do this with myself. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? That's a good question. Um, no right or wrong answer. It's a very broad one. Oh, thank God. I hate, I hate disappointing you. Um, so <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I would think talking about it openly, which I think we do. We talk about a lot of things with social media. I guess that's a good thing. We can talk about a bunch of things with strangers and put it all out there. I think the issue is that we seem to attack certain people and um, make them feel like they're wrong by expressing themselves. So especially probably men, right? A guy that's opening up about his feelings. Well, you're just weak and you're going to be made fun of. So I guess that could change. And then also just, yeah, you know, when somebody's sharing about their experience, don't attack them because your experience is different from theirs. I would say that's the biggest thing that I see now, because honestly, there's a lot of conversations that are happening on social media about mental health, but they're all very one-sided. It's like this one narrative is the only one we accept which leaves no room for anybody to be comfortable to talk about their their issues, right? Exactly. So that would be it. Mars, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great chatting with you, Freddie. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Mars for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links where you can subscribe to Mars's YouTube channel, the podcast, check out the videos we discussed that he's talked about and his social media channels in the show notes as always. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in to this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please remember, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to go even further, visit our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. That's V-E-N-T-H-E-L-P-U-K. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree and across all of our channels. The ticket link for the next Just Checking In Live is also on our link tree as well, guys. So please get a ticket if you haven't already. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it is always okay to vent.